Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control your body and get the health care everyone needs has been stolen. And now politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. And that's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect your right to control your own body and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctors. Planned Parenthood needs your support now. Now more than ever. With supporters like you, you can help reclaim your rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAIP-owned brands right now like Cardin, Kaja, Emilia George, and hey, Meve, plus you can help support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. podcast where me nicole byer tries to figure out how i'm still single even though if you stole all of my sconces out of my house i would say oh i guess it's dark but i still love you my guest today is a stand-up comedian actor writer from england she's been a featured correspondent on the daily show with trevor noah she co-created and stars in the cbs sitcom bob hart's abishola i think i said it right yeah abishola just read the letters Abishola. Yeah. Abishola. (laughs) (laughs) It's Gina Yashirai. Perfect. So do you live, are you, where do you live? In England or are you here in the States? I am in Altadena, California. I'm in Los Angeles, baby. I love it. Altadena, what a beautiful, bougie place. We love it here. We love it. (laughs) We, We were in North Hollywood and then the pandemic hit and then it became like the zombie apocalypse. Mm. And my missus was like, we got to get up out of here. So we moved to peace and quiet and we love it. I do love a little neighborhood vibe. Oh, so do I. A little like I'm close to the city, but I'm far enough away. Yeah. I was just in New York, which is the city city. And, I, love, I uh, love New York. I was there for six years. I had no plans to come back to LA. TV brought me back here. Oh, really? Yeah. The show, Bob Hart's Abishola brought me back to LA. I was happy in New York. Oh, I do love New York. Uh, I tried to empty out a storage unit that I had in New York that I've had for like a decade now because <laughs> I, I was like, I'm going to move back to New York. And then I was like, you know what? I'm not. Let's just empty it. I get there and I realize I forgot the key to the storage unit. <laughs> so I asked the lady, the meanest lady in all of New Jersey, I said, excuse me, can I just cut the lock off? And she was like, yeah, if you damage the door, you got to pay for it. And I was like, all right. So <laughs> go to Home Depot cut the lock off, open it. And I was with a friend and I realized that it was not my unit. I had opened the wrong one. <laughs> oh <laughs> so my I had to go back to the meanest lady in New Jersey to be like, Oh, I made a mistake. And she was like, Oh my God. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, things are hard. Everything's very hard. <laughs> Gina, you yes. said the misses. So Mary. Yeah. Lesbianity. Lesbianity. <laughs> not marriage. <laughs> but as good as. I love that you're like, yes, lesbian. And I'm just like, married? 
not married. We've been together for eight years. It's lovely, but it's in on the horizon. I just hate pomp and ceremony. I hate ceremonies. We're as good as we have a house together. We've mm-hmm. got two dogs. Those are our children. Mm-hmm. Our finances are. We are as good as. <laughs> How did you guys meet? I was performing mm-hmm. at Mitch Fest, Michigan Women's Festival. It has been featured on the L Word and Transparent and other shows. It's a big women's festival in the middle of Michigan. And it's music, it's poetry, it's comedy, it's all mm-hmm. of that good stuff. And it's women running around with their tits out, <laughs> muffs hanging, <laughs> slaps out, the whole shebang lane. No man. Whenever a man comes on land to either change the, the toilet stuff because it was all port potties and stuff, they'd shout, man on the land! <laughs> that kind of place. <laughs> so I was booked to perform there back in 20, I would say 2013. And... Um, I don't do camping. I am not one of those people. So uh-huh. I said to them, and it's a big thing, all the women go there camping. And I was like, I'll come and do the show, but you're going to put me in a hotel <laughs> down the street. Uh-huh. And you're going to have to bust me in every day because I do not sleep on the earth. Okay, I, I feel you. So That's why they, I had a problem with nap time in kindergarten. <laughs> I was like, you want me to sleep on the floor on a mat? Get real. I have a home. Exactly. Exactly. So they were busting me in every day to do the shows. And on the first day I came in, Nina, that's my Mrs. Gina and Nina. We sound ridiculous. And I, I, I begged her to change her name. She won't have it. <laughs> um, she was standing there. She was there with Gloria Bigelow, another comedian who is also her best friend. And um, I pulled up on the bus, I got off, and Nina was standing there with Gloria, and she was like, oh, Gloria, this is Gina Yashoy, I watched her special, she, this is the woman I was telling you about, she's really funny, talking about me, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, great, nice to meet you, and she was like, let me show you around, and she just kind of grabbed my hand, and pulled me off to show me around the mm-hmm. area, and we were just in, pretty much inseparable after that, I mean, I was living in New York at the time, and this is my, I'm, no, I was living in New York, I was living in Los Angeles, I'd come mm-hmm. from England, to LA, I'd been in LA six years at that point, nothing happening for me career-wise. And I'm like, I'm a stand-up comic. I need to earn a living doing stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. And in, in LA, doing a set at the improv for an $8 check is is is, is not gonna cut it. Not it. So I said to all my friends, and over the last seven years I've been living in LA, I've been going back to New York every year and just going for three or four weeks and coming back with more money than I earned in an entire year in LA. Mm-hmm. So I was like, <clears throat> 2013, in June 2013, I said to my friends, okay, I'm going to spend the next 12 months wrapping up my life in LA. I'm going to New York. I'm going to make a living. I'm going to New York. That was in June 2013. August 2013, I met Nina. And would you believe it? She happened to live in New York. So the universe, ah. the universe was like, oh, we're going to make this happen. So we did long distance for the nine months or whatever it was of our relationship until I, my year was up and I moved to New York and basically moved straight into Nina's house. Now, I was not planning to move in with her immediately. I was looking for apartments. And in LA, I was living quite nicely. I had a two-bedroom, two-bath in a building <laughs> with a rooftop pool. Uh-huh. And, and I was paying $1,800 a month. Yep. And I expected to find the same thing. Sure couldn't. In New York. And uh, and Nina was like, uh, you could try, but let, let me tell you, I've got a whole brownstone in Brooklyn. So when you finish your d- little dumb search... <laughs> You can just move into my entire brownstone in Brooklyn. And, yeah, after looking at a couple of apartments and going, you're charging $2,000 for a 200-square-foot cockroach-infested hovel. No, thank you. And so I moved in with Nina, and we've been happily ever after. And uh, we were there happily for six years, and then TV brought me back to L.A., and we were doing long distance again. And then COVID hit, and I called her, and I was like, get on a plane and get out to L.A. right now because the world's about to shut down. (laughs) And she flew out, and the world shut down the day after she flew out. And so she's she's been in L.A., Ever since, and we ended up selling the house in Brooklyn, and we're now we are now in LA. This is us. I love it. This is us on NBC. This is That's, us, baby. Uh, I really fucking love that. Like, you guys had a long distance relationship, moved in together, and it was just I don't know. I guess enough communication happened during your long distance relationship that made living together an easy transition, or was it not an easy transition? No, we just got on really well because this is why I didn't want to live together immediately because I don't like living with people. 
Mm-hmm. I'm very particular about my stuff. I'm a little bit of a clean freak. So I wasn't sure it was going to work. But here's the thing. I moved to New York in June and then immediately went on a three-month tour. In fact, I never even made it to New York. I mm-hmm. packed my car full of all my stuff and then had my car shipped to New York. Oh. And then I was on a, I was on a three-month tour. And Nina unpacked my entire car by herself and moved me into her house. And I was like... Damn, that's love. In my absence. And I was like... This one's a keeper. <laughs> oh, I fucking love that. Um, so Nina is not a comic. Nina is not a comic. She is a professor oh. at John Jay College of New York. So the last Damn. couple of years she's been doing her classes online. So she's a professor, professor at John Jay uh, College of Criminal Justice. So she is... She teaches, uh, she's in interdisciplinary studies, but what she really is concentrating on is teaching the police officers, lawyers, scientists of the future to stop killing black people and stop. So that's her mission. Oh, I mean, honestly, what a nice mission. Thank you, Nina. Thanks, Um, Nina. (laughs) What's it like dating a professor? Like, I, were you intimidated at all? I feel like I would be. Not at all. We have really great conversations. I learned a lot from her. So I'm a person, I'm not intimidating, intimidated by other people with high intelligence. And if, if you know more than me, by all means, let me hear it. I want to mm-hmm. learn from you. So I learned a lot about, and she's a white woman. It's, it's hilarious. She's white, but she knew more about American history and the American history of racism, stuff like that in this country than I do mm-hmm. because I'm from England. And similar experiences, but different. Mm-hmm. Like, we didn't have things like redlining oh. in, in England. Yes, there was racist housing policies, for sure, but not written into the Constitution like it was <laughs> in America. So she taught me a lot of stuff about the, 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 the history of, of um, racism and, 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 and racial relations or whatever in America. So I learned a lot from her. So I was intimidated. I was like, I wasn't intimidated. So I was really interested. So mm-hmm. we had really good conversations. And obviously I taught about my history and where I come from. And it was just a meeting of the minds. And we, and we also had fun. She's mm-hmm. not a boring professor. She's a fun person. Like she made me do things like fucking hiking and bicycling and shit like that, which I was <laughs> never interested in. She's still trying to force me to camp. We've been on a She's couple like, of camping She's like, I'm trips. an ally. I know about racism, but yeah. I would like you to hike and be outside a bit. Uh, yeah, so she's forced <laughs> me into various activities. But you know what? It's opened me up to stuff that I've never thought I was interested in, and now I love. I don't love hiking, and I'm never going to love camping. <laughs> but I do. I did enjoy the cycling, and I do enjoy the swimming now. I would never swim before. Oh. And I was like, I'm not interested in swimming, and I like getting wet, and I like it. But then we have our own pool now, and I realize it's just because I was a germaphobe. I didn't like swimming mm. in other people's pools. Now I've got my own pool. Oh, I'm in that shit every day. So <laughs> she's opened up my mind. I love this. So is your relationship, was that inspiration for your show, which is about a white man who falls in love with a Nigerian woman? Not at all. That, oh. the, the whole show idea came from Chuck Lorre. I just came in and made it good and made it authentic. Um, ah. Chuck Lorre called me in for me. So Chuck loved Billy Gardell. And he made Mike and Molly with Billy Gardell. And he wanted mm-hmm. another project from Billy Gardell, but he didn't want to make another Mike and Molly. And mm-hmm. he'd just come from a trip to Africa. He'd gone all over Africa and he met beautiful people. And it was in the middle of Trump era when the craziness and the xenophobia and the racism was out of control. And it was Chuck's idea. He was like, I want to make a show where I'm going to make the female protagonist a Nigerian immigrant. Mm-hmm. Totally his idea. But then he was like, I don't know how to do this. I'm a white guy who's not really had any experience. We, I need a, someone to help me create, create this. And so him and his two executive producers went about basically looking for someone that can help them make the show. And basically what they did was Google Nigerian female comedians. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Google is a Google. fucking friend. <laughs> and, I was the, and I was the best one that came up. And they flew me over from New York for a meeting. 
And I was very suspicious, obviously. So suspicious uh-huh. that I told my agent to turn it down. <laughs> but then luckily I have a best friend and brother in England who will call me up and tell me I'm being a fucking idiot when I'm being a fucking idiot. Mm-hmm. So then I stayed and and basically uh, a meeting that was supposed to be one day and me going back to New York st- turned into me staying in a room with Chuck Lorre and two white guys for three weeks writing a pilot. <laughs> So and I had could, you written for television before? No, I refused at this point because I, 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 all my career I was like I'm a stand-up comic, uh-huh. and I've heard horror stories about being the only black person in a writers' room. Mm-hmm. So I'd avoided the writers' room, and I was like, I don't want a day job. I'm a stand-up comic. I make a good living, traveling the world, doing what the hell I want, working for myself, and not answering to anybody, and making my little specials. And that's what I want to do forever. I do not mm-hmm. want to day job i don't want to be in a right zoom i don't want to be involved in uh office politics i don't want mm-hmm. none of that shit so i'd avoid it i'd written on a sketch show in england very early on in my career and that cemented your thoughts on how i don't want to fucking do that exactly so i hadn't written on a team i just was not interested and that was part of the reason why i turned it down because it was also my fear of going back into that environment but you know, my brother and best friend screamed at me and were like, this is an opportunity. You've been complaining uh-huh. about the lack of opportunity for black women in your industry. You've been trying to pitch show, shows for years and nobody buying. And here's an opportunity to make a show with the king of sitcoms and you're saying no. Are you fucking... Re- anyway, are you an idiot? Did you have like a say in how the room was popular, the writer's room, like on uh, who was hired and whatnot? I did. I did it in a way that was non confrontational what I did <laughs> so you know I helped them write the pilot that the pilot got picked up and so then I was like because when we're writing the show I was like if we're going to do this show you're going to listen to me if I say black people don't do this or mm-hmm. we don't speak like this or this is a stereotype or this is racist please believe me mm-hmm. please believe me or this show is going to be dead in the water so and I could tell that they were interested and wanted to listen so that was mm-hmm. a good start and then when we were doing the writer's room I was like, we can't have the same old white guys that you're used to writing these shows. We need to populate this room with more black writers and more definitely more women. No, I'm not going to be the only wo- woman in this room. Mm-hmm. I'm not having it. And they were like, and so what I would do, every time I had a show like I, I was headlining a show at Flappers in Burbank, and I was like, come to the show. Come, come, come see me do some comedy. And then when they came to the show, I called up all my black friends and all my female friends. And I was like, come open for me. I didn't tell them what it was. Uh I said, come open for me at Flappers. So my friends came and opened for me. And then um, I I called Gloria Bigelow, Nina's best friend. I said, come open for me at the show. Didn't say anything, what it was about. Uh She came and did a set. And uh, Eddie and Al had come to the show and they were like, oh, we really like that girl, Gloria. She was funny. And I was like... Well, she writes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, this story is. It, there should be more stories like that. You know, white men who have power, who want to write different voices, yes. should find the voice to help them cultivate it. Because now you get to go out into the world as a creator of a show who can show run and is at an EP level. Yeah, executive producer level if you don't know and like that's 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 being an ally that's how you cause change that's my joy i just that's my joy gina like i mean i love that you you got the opportunity but then you didn't say it's just me you just you went oh let me get the other fucking people up in here and i was like i just fucking love that and you're on season three right Oh yeah, and we just got picked up for season four. Got picked up early. fucking relations. So like we're this... all over the moon. <laughs> we got you know Gloria is here. She's season four. She's in the writers' room. She just bought a house. Life is good. We got a y- another young black Nigerian writer in the room. Yvette Inyang Vanesh. She is a young Nigerian writer. Very young. She's like I'm not. She's under thirty. 26 mm-hmm. she, she was I think when she came into the rise room so she's in we got a guy called uh, Marcus Turner Jamarcus Turner who we found in a factory in Indi- Indiana huh. he was working building gas tanks in a factory in Indiana we uh, his script ended up on the table on our table and we were, and I was I said to her 
This guy's signing. This is where else is a black guy who works in a factory in Indiana going to get a chance to write on prime time TV? I love it. Let's let's give him a chance. And now he's in the writers' room. We've got a nice mix of people. Mm-hmm. We've got you know we've got an Italian woman. We've got some white guys. We've got a nice mix, and that's what I love. Yeah, I fuck it. What a dream. I really love this. This is I <laughs> I feel like that's how like all jobs should and they're not. That's it's a lot of gatekeeping, no. a lot of like hard to get in. And it's just like if you give people opportunities, one, it might not work out, but that's the worst thing that happens. Best thing that happens is you like someone gets a career out of it and someone gets to have a, like a better fucking life doing what they want to do. Well, that's what I'm saying. And I, I always said to Al and Chuck and Eddie, I was like, Look, listen, you guys were lucky you found me. Hmm. I am not the only me out there. Ah. Let, let me find you other me's and you guys will make even more money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, inclusion is in everyone's best interest because then it's like you get to reach different people by having different voices and then you get to make more money. Yeah, and Chuck's got a show now. He loves our show. It's exciting to him because he's never done a show like this before. Mm-hmm. This is the first show that Chuck has ever done where over half the cast is black and Nigerian at that. Yes, and like, like actual Nigerians, like yeah, right? and, and, and it was Chuck that was whose idea it was to have uh, Kofo and Goodwin, the guys that work in Bob's warehouse, who speak Yoruba and subtitle it. I wouldn't even uh, um, have thought to do that because I would have been like, "Oh, white people watching this, they're not gonna." Chuck was like, "No, we're going in. Let's do it. Let's go in." And it was his idea, so he's excited by the new opportunities to make new types of television. And our show is groundbreaking. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I love it so much. Real quick, we have to take a break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's always something that I really need to talk about. And thank God I have a podcast. But then there's stuff that I don't want to reveal publicly. So I talk to a therapist. And listen, we all carry around different stressors big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get stuff off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire, get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional cost. And I got to say, that's very important because the first person you meet might not be good for you. So even though it's work, you got to work to find someone who like is helpful and is good for you. So don't stick with someone just because you feel like you have to get it off your chest with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash date me today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp com slash date me. Okay. Hey, did you know one in five Americans have learn a new language on their bucket list? If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste time on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned out in the real world world. Babbel made it super easy for me to brush up on my Spanish before my vacation to Mexico. See how I said that? It's it's better and it sounds like I speak Spanish. It just makes traveling better so you can like order food, ask for directions and flirt with the locals. Me encanta muchacho. Without having to consult language apps while on vacation. Here's a special limited time deal for my listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash date me. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash date me. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash date me. Rules and restrictions may apply. Good, I can get more food in my face while we're taking this break. <laughs> It is a quick break because we're back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Let me swallow this food. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just to like go back to love for a little love. bit. Let's go back to love. What was dating like 
before you met Nina? Were you on dating apps? Because it was 2013, so I think dating apps were a thing. I never did dating apps. Oh, um, God bless. How lucky. Yeah, and I'm, I feel so blessed to not have to go through that internet gamut of judgment and uh, lookism and racism and sexism and fatism and whatever you think. No. <laughs> it is awful. Fat. I, I, I feel terrible. For all you singles out the world who have to navigate this, it's horrible. <laughs> and this is why I'm never letting Nina go. <laughs> I mean, I, it's a very good reason. Besides uh, love. Besides love. But yeah, um, dating for me, I mean, when I moved to, I've never been a serial dater. Oh. I'm a serial monogamist. Mm-hmm. I never did lots of dating. I just, I don't. And this is how I found most of my partners. They usually approach me and I go, oh. Oh, I never know when people like me. I'm useless. <laughs> I'm confident in every other aspect of my life. I'm outspoken with my work. I know I'm good at what I do. I'm confident, confident. Anybody meets me, go, oh, that girl is super confident. <laughs> but when it comes to getting girlfriends, not that confident. I said, people like me and I, I don't realise until they flash their tits at me, whatever. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> so the majority of my girlfriends have been people who have gone, I like you. And I go, Oh, really? Oh, okay. All right, then. All right, let's, let's, let's give this a go. And that's how it's been for the majority. And so, but when I was living in LA, I never dated any women in LA. I, I, I shouldn't even say it, but I found, some, I found a lot of them so vacuous. And, <laughs> and, and I, so when I was in LA, most of my girlfriends all came from Oakland. <laughs> I imported them. I imported them in from Oakland. <laughs> uh, so I had girlfriends from Oakland. And they were all, yeah, both these girls approached me. And that, that's the thing I've never, I think the last girlfriend I had that I approached myself was 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> we, just, we ended up being together for seven years. But I'm, but then after that, it was all girls that were like, I like you. And I'm like, oh, well, then let's try this. <laughs> seven years is a long time. So, yeah, you just, you go from relationship to relationship. Yeah. So we ended and then I take a break. Then I had a couple of short-lived relationships with crazy women from Chicago. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I was like, no, this ain't going to work out. Another crazy woman from <laughs> Oakland. This ain't going to work out. <laughs> then, uh, yeah. yeah. And then Nina. <laughs> and that's and we've been together eight years. So oh, I love uh, that. I attract, I, I attract mainly the long haulers, which is good. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to attract somebody who's like, in it to win it. I just, I date people for like a couple months and then they're like, you know, I I, I think we need to part ways. I've always been broken up with. Uh, uh, I've never broken up with anybody. Yeah, see, my I think my attitude in that, I'm like, oh, well, this is fine. If this works out, it works out. If it doesn't, I'm quite happy. That attitude makes people want to cling on to me a little bit more. <laughs> you mm. know? I'm not saying I play hard to get, I play games. I'm just, I'm quite happy on my own. And people see that, and then they were like, oh, well, I I, I want. <laughs> and that's basically how I've managed to. And also, I have fun. I'm not, I don't take it too seriously. I think I could learn from that, just like yes. not taking things too seriously. Yeah. Although I did, I went on a date a while ago where I was like, oh, boy, I could go on a second date with this person, but I think I'd be really upset about it. I'm going to listen <laughs> to myself and I'm not going to go out with them again. And they were like, That's let's good. go out again. And I was like, you know, I wish you the best, but I don't think this is a, this is it. That's good. That's good. Come from a place of confidence in yourself and know that someone's out there for you. And you ain't going to take second best. Just have no. fun. Yeah. And it's, Just it's have about fun. Have fun with it. Be relaxed about it. You said you have a, you have a brother, you have, Brothers, brothers, two, two, bro- two brothers. Yeah, where are they? All my family is in England. I'm the only one who escapes. My, my, I've got two sisters as well. Older sister, younger sister. Everybody's still in London. I'm the only one that got out. <laughs> are they single? Um, my sisters are both single because they're both weirdos. That's a whole other story. You can have to read my book to find out about that. <laughs> well, what's the name of your book? Let's promote that. Oh, it's called Cat Handed because I'm left-handed. Mm-hmm. And cat-handed also means awkward and clumsy, which left-handed people tend to me to be. And <clears throat> it's also the fact that my, it also 
covers the fact that my career and life has taken unconventional routes and that's why this is the book I know we're not doing it's only audio but it's available all good book- bookstores and on Amazon and it's a good book <laughs> I got five star reviews on Amazon people it's a good book it's a good cover too I like it I like your outfit on the cover yeah it's kind of bright it's me being me you know um but yeah, so it's a memoir and it covers my journey from being born in England, where I went through in England, the racism, misogyny, whatever. I used to be an engineer, all that stuff, coming to England. And it covers a little bit of my love life too. Not much, since ah. it wasn't that active. I wasn't that exciting. But yeah, <laughs> so I've got two sisters and two brothers. Um, one brother is happily married, uh, two kids. Him and his wife have been together, I'm going to say 20 years. Damn. Yeah. And my other brother, uh, single newly single but he mm. was he's a player back in the day he's the one of those guys three kids mm. three women you know that Ooh, but yes. but but I've got to say dad to all his kids doting grandpa uh, and in good on good terms of all his baby mamas <laughs> see I like that it's do what you want but at least yeah. keep it civil keep it yeah. nice yeah. so you said you used to be an engineer what kind of engineer were you? I used to build and repair elevators for Otis. I was the first female engineer that Otis in the UK had had in their 100-year history. Sounds great. It was horrible. Uh, first woman, surrounded by white men. Um, misogyny and racism abounded. You know, people always, you know, I always do these interviews where they go, as a woman in comedy, is it really hard? And I'm like, as an engineer... I used to come into work and there were bananas stuck in my coat pockets and pictures of monkeys put on the wall above my overalls. So, no. <laughs> That's fucking shitty. Yo, people are like, I don't know. I'm like, get a hobby. Like, how are you? Why are you doing any of this shit? It's rude. So rude. Uh, yeah, so that is also in the book. I went through a baptism of fire, as you were, but <laughs> I came out the other side better, stronger. I like that you have like a even like I don't know. It doesn't feel like you have a chip on your shoulder. You're just like shit's happened, but you know I keep moving forward. Yeah, I wouldn't say I got a chip on my shoulder, but I'm aware of stuff that's going on, and mm-hmm. I get angry. I get very angry if you follow me on social media. I have my happy go lucky <laughs> videos, and then one day I will do a rant, <laughs> and I don't hold back. So, you know, I do get angry. I do get, you know, very irritated with what is going on in the world. And I hate the way this country's being run at the present time. And the people that are trying, uh, you know, it's a bunch of white, greedy men enriching themselves at the expense of everybody and everything. But I also am of the belief that I want to make my own slice of happiness in my corner of the world. I can't spend too much time worrying about the world because I'll die of a stroke. Yeah. So I've got to balance it out. I've got to balance it out. Yeah. I think that's the key to life. Just a little bit of balance. It's okay to like, you know, look at the news, look at the world, but also it's like, what makes you happy? Yeah. Yeah. So you don't drink. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. (laughs) And yet... Life and soul of the party, Nicole. <laughs> Can I ask you about, have you ever had a, like a cocktail, a beverage? Oh, yeah. I just never like the taste of it. I'm a sugar junkie. I love sweet things, chocolate, mm. cakes, candies. That is my drug of choice. Mm-hmm. So if a drink is sweet and delicious, oh, I'll partake like I love a bit of Bailey's. A Christmas, I, lo- I know I sound like an old lady. I don't you really give a do. shit. And I, I love it shit. so much. Bailey's is fucking delicious. Love a bit. Of Bailey's. <laughs> love a bit of it. It's like ice cream in a cup. It's fucking beautiful. So I love. And, and what, there's my my neighbour is Puerto Rican. And she makes us this drink at Christmas. I think it's called Conchita. Conchita. It's very similar to Bailey's. It's a creamy mm-hmm. alcoholic beverage, and it's delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's it. I. I've never, you know, I've only ever been drunk once in my life. And I was like, why do people do this to themselves on a regular basis? I don't get it. <laughs> so I, I just never caught the drinking bug. I, I, I like sweet, sugary things. And beer does not do that. Wine is disgusting to me. Mm-hmm. Just none of, It just doesn't do anything for me. It's not, not, not through any moral code. I just don't like the taste. But drugs... I've smoked a bit of weed and whatever. Yeah, of course. But I don't do it on a regular basis because I don't like taking smoke into my lungs. Just don't like it. Sure. Um, and 
I've also got a very, a very addictive personality, so I've never tried Coke because I know I would love it. Yeah, it's a good time. I would love it. I know I'd love it and I know <laughs> that I'd go overboard because that's how I do. I get addicted to things very quickly and very heavily. And I know that if I did Coke, I would end up in an alleyway sucking off random dudes for mm. it. I know how I will end up, so I'm not going to try it because I know myself too well. I, uh, I used to smoke... I quit January 3rd and for a minute I was like, but I want them. And now it's gone to the point where I'm like, what did I like about them? They weren't nice. They weren't fun. They didn't make me feel good. Exactly. Yeah. I smoked for three weeks when I was 16. Oh yeah. Three weeks. And then you were like, this isn't for me. Yeah, because I went to a school, which was a very cool school in London called Camden School for Girls. And I was doing, I was 16 and they had a smoking room. For the 16 to 18-year-olds. In school? In school. They had a smoking room. Where the six, you know, they were like, you girls make your own decisions in life. And if you want to smoke, this is where you can smoke. And that's where all the cool girls hung out. So I used to go and hang out in the smoking room. Was this school sponsored by Big Tobacco? What do you, like, that's truly insane. That's so wild. It was a very highly rated school. And it still is. If you look up Camden School for Girls in London, it's a very highly rated school. Uh, but they were just, they believed in 16 to 8 roles being having autonomy, you know, of their own bodies. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's a smoker's room and all the cool girls hung out in the smoker's room. So I used to go to the smoker's room and obviously I started smoking with the cool girls. But then after three weeks, I was like, this is gross. It smells. I don't mm-hmm. like it. Why the hell am I doing this? And I said, I'm giving up. I'll hang out with you guys in there, but I'm not smoking. This is bullshit. And, uh, and that was it. And I never smoked again. <laughs> Yeah, it is funny. I like when I was in New York, uh, I went to New York earlier this week and New York was I lived there for eight years and I smoked and I, you know, it's like (laughs) what I did. You drink, you smoke. And I was like, it feels so weird to not smoke as I'm walking the streets of New York. But then I like saw this guy smoking and I was like, oh, but like he smells. He smells like smoke and he's not it's not doing anything for him. Exactly. Exactly. I read this book, Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Quit Smoking. And uh, usually I don't subscribe to like bullshit like that. But I was like, I don't know. This book truly helped me. Because it was like, it was like, you don't enjoy it. What do you like about it? And you're like, oh, I guess actually nothing. It's like, do you actually feel relaxed or are you just feeding your addiction? And you're like, oh, I guess I'm relaxing because I was in withdrawal. And you're like, oh, no. What have I been doing? Well, at least you made the change. You did it. I did. Thank you so much. <laughs> also, are you vegan? Uh, I am right now, yes. I'm not going to say I am vegan. I say I eat vegan. Oh, okay. So you eat vegan right yeah, now. Yeah, it's not a... I did it out of health, not out of choice. Uh, I, I love meat. Meat is delicious. I am African. <laughs> and African people love me. But... But I, I suffer from lupus. I was uh, um, diagnosed with lupus back in 2005, and I was very ill for a very long time, like to the point where I had a raised toilet seat. I struggled to walk, struggled mm-hmm. to lift my arms above my head, um, and to the point where the doctors were feeding me with steroids and all kinds of drugs and painkillers. And at one point, the doctors were like, we don't know what to do. So we're thinking maybe we'll try chemotherapy. And that's where I was like, okay, let's stop. You guys are experimenting experiment on me like a guinea pig. I need to change my lifestyle. So then I started Wait, researching. Wait, so doctors were like, we don't know what's wrong with you. Let's give you chemo fucking therapy? Yep, they're like, this lupus, we've tried all these drugs. Chemo, let's, it's basically that a chemotherapy is like a hard reset for your uh-huh. body and immune system. They just wipe out everything. Oh, and that's God. what they do when they, when you have cancer, they wipe out everything to completely destroy your immune system and try and build you back up again. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And then I started researching alternative ways to, mm-hmm. to, to heal yourself of illness. And I discovered raw veganism. I went raw vegan for about a year. And my lupus went into remission almost immediately. Ah. And I, ca- I came off all my medication. And this was back in 2009. The doctor was like, you're crazy. You never, you can't do this. You're going to die. Your body's going to go into shock. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've been off lupus medication since 2009. And I manage it with eating. Now, I've been 100% vegan the entire time because I'm one of those people, as I said, 
I've got an addictive personality. Mm-hmm. I'll eat a lamb chop and I'll go, oh my God, lamb chops. And then I'll eat nothing but fucking <laughs> lamb chops for six months. So I've been, you know, going up and down, up and down. But mm-hmm. I know when my body, I, my arthritis starts to come back. When I'm eating too badly, my arthritis starts to come back and the vegan, the, the lupus symptoms start to come back. Mm-hmm. And then the vegan lifestyle comes, you better come back. You better come back to us unless you want to end up back where you were in 2007. So, yeah, so I try and eat clean. And right now, clean for me is vegan. No meat, no animal products, no dairy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what happens to your body when you have lupus? It can hit you in many, a myriad of different ways because lupus is basically your immune system attacking everything your immune system cannot tell the difference between good cells and bad cells so it attacks everything it it can attack your skin it can attack your joints it can attack your heart lungs liver Mm -hmm. kidneys anywhere so i had the worst type of lupus mine attacked started attacking my kidneys at one point attacked Mm -hmm. my joints so i had horrific arthritis uh, for a very long time, horrific, and it started to attack my kidneys. So uh, I wanted to put a stop to it before the damage became irreparable. So then I changed my lifestyle, and now my kidneys are functioning normal. The arthritis has gone away. You know, I can work. My brother, I was on the phone to my brother last night, and he's like, "I can't believe that you're you're better now than you were. Like you're fifty years old, and you're better." <laughs> now than you were at 35 uh-huh. because I remember when you couldn't I remember he goes to me one time you were staying in my house and you were in the toilet for 45 minutes he says to me and he, he bangs on the door and goes Gina what are you doing in there and I, I was like I can't get off this seat my arthritis was so bad that I couldn't get off the seat and I was sitting in the toilet for 45 minutes because I couldn't get up mm-hmm. my, my knees were locked up and now I'm playing pickleball, I'm swimming, I'm running, I'm, you know, and that's just from changing my lifestyle. It is truly wild. If you change, like, a couple things that you're eating, even if you don't have, like, an illness, you just fucking feel better. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why I'm eating vegan. Um, And and that's vegan food is so much better now. There's so many wonderful places. Mm -hmm. Like Tabitha Brown has just opened up a place in Encino. She did? Called Care of My Name. So I have got to go there. I have to go there too. I'm writing it down. It looks because delicious. I love her. She is yes. so sweet and wonderful. Uh, I was vegan for I was vegan for like a solid four months. Oh, I were? felt better. My skin yeah. was better. I had more energy. I just love meat so much. I need to find a a nice balance between yes. eating meat and not eating meat. Yeah, just yeah. for for me and my body. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Real quick, we got to take another break. Let's do it. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service that's all about helping you have fun and get creative with your style. Shift gears in your wardrobe without a complete and expensive overhaul. Dressy stuff, trendy going out clothes, casual tops and premium jeans, sweaters, outerwear, vacation fits, you name it. For just $98 a month, you get a choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands with inclusive sizing, fast, free shipping and returns, and professional cleaning in newly state-of-the-art laundering facility, plus the option to buy what you love. I like Newly a lot because sometimes I don't want to like own a sparkly thing because I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to wear it more than once. Also, I have a ton of sparkly things. And Newly is very good at like having a sparkly thing that I'll wear once and then I can send it right back. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now you get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DATEME20. Just go to newly.com, N U U L Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code DATEME20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com. Newly with two U's with code DATEME20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. 
Spring is the best time to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, tap into your power, and build towards whatever you're looking for. Okay, Peloton can accommodate your schedule with a variety of class lengths to choose from. Even if you only have five minutes, there's a class to get your body moving. And I have to stress how important that is. Five minutes is better than no minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and mood. Move at your own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take the guesswork out of working out. So you can just jump right in, keeping your fitness journey fresh every day because that's what it is, a journey. And listen, Peloton has everything you need to get to where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, uh, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton is something for you. Ooh, the Peloton classes I like to do are strength training. I also like the yoga because um, I'm always trying to get more flexible um, because I love doing splits because I'm slutty. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at (laughs) OnePeloton.com. And oh, we're back. Okay, so (laughs) tell me why you left the UK for America. It's been my dream since I was a child. Uh, As a kid watching TV shows, I watched things like Different Strokes. Now, looking back at Different Strokes, it was very (laughs) problematic. (laughs) But as a kid watching it, I was like, I want to live in America and be adopted by a rich white man and live this amazing (laughs) life. What? There's nothing wrong with that. Um... And I watched shows where kids were riding around on cool bicycles in LA solving crimes. And Mm -hmm. I was like, uh, I want to live by a beach and and ride around solving crimes. So that was my dream as a child, being born in, raised in quite a poor area of London. I was born in the East End, East End of London. Mm -hmm. Very, you know, very working class, a lot of immigration, a lot of immigrants, lot of racism, skinheads and immigrants. Not mm-hmm. a good combination. No. And so, you know, I'd be watching these TV shows all in America and going, these kids all live near beaches. Like, I, well, I want to go to America so I can live near a beach and hang out after school with Brad and Chad. And that was my dream. And that dream followed me all through my life. Even when I was working as an engineer, I worked for Otis, which I knew was an American company Mm -hmm. because my plan was to get enough experience as an engineer in England and then transfer and work for Otis in America. Mm -hmm. So it was my dream my entire life. My entire life, I was focused on somehow getting to America. Then I got into comedy and, you know, I was in comedy in England and I got really good very quickly and I was quite successful. But then I I hit a glass ceiling in Mm -hmm. that, as a successful black comic, your level of success stopped at a certain level, whereas all my white peers went on to become multimillionaires selling out stadiums, and I stopped at a certain level. Mm-hmm. So I became very frustrated. And even when I started doing comedy, uh, I made friends with uh, like American comics that used to come and tour in England. Like I toured with JB Smooth oh, I love 25 him. years ago, but you know, Will Sil Vince, you know, Ian Edwards. Um, all those guys used to come to England mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And I toured with them at the beginning of my career. So I was friendly with them. So I, in the beginning of my comedy career, I'd fly out to New York on, on vacation and then hang out at the comedy clubs and do sets just to see if my stuff worked. And so I always knew that as a comedian, I, by hook or by crook, I was going to get to America. I don't know how. Mm-hmm. And then Last Comic Standing came along. And that was my ticket. Mm-hmm. There you uh, go. I got through to the final of Last Comic Standing at the semi-finals, and they got me a work visa. And um, it was a two-year work visa. And I was like, this is a two-year work visa. Uh, the show only is only going to be filmed for another four weeks. What happens? Does, does that mean I can live and work in America for two years? And they're like, yeah, it's a two-year work So I went back to England for a weekend, put my house on the market, sold, and gave away everything I owned. Holy shit. And turned up in America with two suitcases to my name. Through a massive party at the house that I was selling. And everybody was like, you're crazy. It's just a tea. You're going to have to come back. And I was like, trust me. I ain't coming back. I'm going to turn this into something. You ain't seen me again. And yeah, two years later, I got my green card. <laughs> and I was gone. I was, uh, I was gone. 
That's so fucking funny. You're like, fuck this. Goodbye. And everyone's like, you're yeah, crazy. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. you're fucking crazy. If you think I'm fucking coming back, goodbye. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> How did you get into comedy? What led you there? So when I left engineering, I left um, after four years working for Otis. Couldn't bear it anymore. I was taking a break. I took voluntary redundancy, so they paid me off. I said to them, make me redundant or else I'm going to make public all the racism and misogyny within this company. Wait, make me redundant? What does that mean? Uh, Lay me off with a payout. Oh. Because they were the building industry went to a slump in the mid-90s and they were laying people off. But they were not laying me off because I was their diversity hire kind Mm. of thing. They had me on all their brochures. Okay, look, we've got a black person and a woman. You're all in one. <laughs> look at this. So I was on all their fucking brochures. So they, and, and, I, and I was a good engineer. So I was good at my job. And I, I ticked up a load of boxes. So they were not going to lay me off. But I was done with it at this point because I was not getting the promotions I was supposed to get. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd give me the money and they'd give me the promotion in name. And I'm like, but I'm supposed to be running my own site now. Why mm-hmm. am I not running my own site? And they're like, well, we don't think guys will listen to girls. So uh, we'll give you the promotion because you deserve it. But we're not going to give you the responsibility that goes with that promotion. Huh. So that's what I was up against for a long time. And at one point, I took them to a, a grievance hearing. I went to the top bosses. Filled up, mm-hmm. I went to, and I was like, this is discrimination. My union who I've been paying into for four years, refused to represent me at this hearing. What the fuck? That's so fucking wild. Yeah, my union rep went, ah, we don't know about this women's lib stuff. Those were his actual Aww. words. Those were his actual words, my union rep. We, I don't know wow. about this women's lib stuff. So. That is truly incredible. Yeah, so I went to this hearing, 21 years old, alone, unrepresented, and obviously I lost because I was up against a panel of old white mm-hmm. men who went, we don't think we're doing anything wrong. Do you think we're doing anything wrong? No. What about you? Chat? No? Okay. No, we're not doing anything. On your way, young black woman. So I left. I uh, They were making me run it. I said, I, I marched into my manager's office and I went, make me redundant. Uh, lay me off with the six-month pay payout. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. So they laid me off and they gave me a nice payout. So I spent the summer just hanging out, having fun. <laughs> And people had always told me it was funny, you know, but I didn't see that as a career. I used comedy as a uh, a way to deflect from being in conflict because being an African kid at school, we were not cool. I got, uh, you know, got into fights a lot. School people tried to bully me, so mm-hmm. I'd fight a lot. And then, you know, I got fed up with beating people up. I was like, there must be another way to get out of conflict other than just being the craziest kid and just fighting everybody. Mm-hmm. And then I, that's how my sense of humour, I started using comedy as a deflecting tool. So people always told me I was funny. Um, I joined the Nation of Islam after I left Otis because that's what you do when you've been horribly abused by white people for a long time. I joined the Nation of Islam for... Uh, that was very short-lived, very short-lived. Yeah. Very short-lived. It's all in the book. It's all in the book. Yeah. Don't get the book you, to Man, get the full so story. That's so fucking funny. So I keep it abused by white people. He joined the Nation of Islam, you know? Yeah, that's uh, religion where they're like, we fucking hate white people. Uh, yeah. That's, oh man, that really yeah. got me good. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very short lived. It was under a year, but I joined, joined the Nation of Islam. And then I, but I learned a lot about my black history that they never taught us in school. That was mm-hmm. a good thing about Nation of Islam. I learned a lot about how powerful black people were before slavery, that we are not defined by slavery. We were people before that. Mm-hmm. So then I started looking into more of that stuff and I joined various organisations that were doing work in the community and that's how I got into comedy because one day we were doing a fundraiser and they were, they were like, we need poets and dancers and singers and stuff. And so me and a couple of friends of mine were always messing around uh, doing our mum's accents. Mm-hmm. You know, all of us were Nigerian so we mess about talking to each other in our mum's Nigerian accents. So I wrote what I thought was a play for us to perform Mm -hmm. for this uh, fundraiser. It was a play, us playing our Nigerian mothers in this play. Turns out I'd written a comedy sketch Mm -hmm. (laughs) because people (laughs) laughed their asses off. And I was like, "Mm, ah," and it was like a ka-ching moment. It was like, oh, da-da. 
And then we started entering um, talent competitions with this one sketch that I wrote. And we kept mm-hmm. winning these talent competitions, just winning, win after win after win with this one sketch. Then one day, the other two girls were not that serious, but one day they didn't turn up for the semifinal of a competition that we were in. Uh, one of them had been burgled and the other one had gone to help her. And this was in 95 or something. Mm-hmm. And this is before cell phones were, were ubiquitous and I was the only one who had a pager. So there was no one to contact. <laughs> so I'm at this competition and the other two girls aren't there. And the guy's like, uh, you guys are up next. So I went up on stage by myself and just talked for 10 minutes and <laughs> had the crowd in the palm of my hand. And then people kept coming up to me and you know, I need those two other girls. You are a stand-up comic. And I was like, what is this stand-up comedy they speak of? (laughs) And then I started researching that. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I am a stand-up comic. And that's basically how I became a comedian. And I was like, well, I'll do this for fun for six months. And then, uh, because it's the summer and I'm enjoying the summer, I'll do this comedy thing. And then come winter, when my money runs out, I'll go back to engineering. But I never went back to engineering. Comedy took off. And 27 years later, whatever it is, I'm still here. I fucking love that a theme in your life seems to be, <laughs> oh, I guess I'll do this yeah. and uh, bye bye to that. And then yeah. it's, and then oh, I think there's something to like believing in yourself enough to be like, this is what I want and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, I'm a gung ho kind of person. Um, I go for something and I throw everything at it. If it fails, I go, well, I did, I did everything I could to make it successful. Next. <laughs> and then I move on. I, and I don't care. And that's how I've always been. I've gone, fuck it, I'll try this. Yeah, my motto in life is, fuck it, give it a go. Yeah. And that's what, how I've always been. And so that's how comedy was. Like, I love this. I'm going to throw everything I can at it. I want to be the best at it. I, I think a lot of people could learn from that. Uh, <laughs> because I think a lot of people are just scared of failure. And then it's like, well, if you don't fail, then how do you ever figure out how to succeed? Exactly. I'm not scared of failure. I mean, I'm scared, not scared of failure. I don't want to fail. Yeah, you don't Nobody want to fail, to but fail. like, if it happens, it happens. Like, when I started doing comedy, I was like, so afraid of bombing. And then the first bomb I had, I was like, meh, that wasn't that bad. I'll figure it out to do better next time. So then exactly. you kind of embrace the bombs. You learn. Yeah. Is your family uh, supportive or were they supportive in the beginning of your comedy career? Absolutely not. My mother is an African woman. Immigrant mentality is like, you know, I I, do, I used to do a joke where I go, in an African family, you've got only a few choices of career. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant, mm-hmm. disgrace to the family. Those are the choices. <laughs> and I was an engineer, so I was on the list. Mm-hmm. And then my mum's like, hold on. You are leaving engineering to become a clown. Mm-hmm. What the hell is this? What, is, what am I going to tell my, you know? So she was not impressed. She was not happy. <laughs> And the way I sold it to her, I was like, listen, mom, I'm already a qualified engineer. I can walk into a job anytime I want. I'm going to do this and see how it pans out. And if it doesn't work, I I will still be an engineer. I will never not be an engineer. Mm-hmm. And so my mom was like, fine, do a clown business and then go and get a proper job later. And then, but then I got on television. Within six months of starting comedy, I got on this huge nationally uh, shown um, competition. It was like a talent competition. And it was hosted by a guy called Jonathan Ross, who is our version of a Leno or a Fallon or a mm-hmm. Kim, you know what I mean? Big show. And so once I got on this show with Jonathan Ross, that validated everything. And then furthermore, my mum came to the show because I got through to the final. She won't come to the semi-final. She's like, if you get through to the final, I will come. <laughs> so she comes to the final. And Jonathan Ross points her out and my mum stands up on television in full view of the world with her arms up like that, going, yes, I am the one. I am the reason this one is a clown. If it wasn't for me... This one is a clown. (laughs) So, yeah, so after that, after I was on TV, it validated everything for her. Mm-hmm. And she's been nothing but supportive ever since. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you got to get some success before yep. people get behind you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is kind of a bummer, but also not a bu- I don't. I don't know how to articulate it other than like, sometimes you just have to prove to people that you can do it before they're like, okay, all yeah, right. And, and the immigrant mentality, my mom came to England, sacrificed 
the success that she had in Nigeria to give us a better life in England. So as far as she was concerned, I didn't make all these sacrifices for you to squander it on bullshit. You know, Mm -hmm. that was her mentality. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. So you have a birthmark on your neck. I do. And I read that your grandmother. Yes. Had a, wait, what did I read? So, okay. According to a family superstition, your grandmother was poisoned by her jealous sister wives and yes. marked with a spot on her neck. And you mm-hmm. have the sim- you have a similar birthmark to the spot on her neck that she was marked with. Yes, I'm a reincarnation of her. Okay. I am her. And you know what? Whenever I've gone to uh, psychics, they always say the same, same thing. There was an older lady guiding you in your <sighs> life. Every single psychic I've ever gone to has always said the same thing. There's a woman guiding there's an older woman guy and i know that is my grandmother so and here's the story i mean i'm very i'm spiritual and i believe and these are stories that have been passed out my mom told me these stories that when my, my when my mom was a little girl her mother used to say because she was married she had 11 kids she was one of several wives and she's like and she used to say to my mom when she was kids like when i come back because we believe strongly in reincarnation she's mm-hmm. like when i come back when i come back i'm going to be speaking english because Nigeria is a British colony. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to be speaking English, perfect English. I'm going to be English and I'm not going to have all these children. I don't want to let, because she had 11 children. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want a man. I don't want children. I'm going to live my life in freedom. You know, if I want to, I will do a man's job. I will live. And these are the things that she used to say. Mm-hmm. Then she's murdered because she's the most powerful wife and her kids were more beloved than the otherwise kids. So she was poisoned. When she was poisoned, she died with a mark on her throat. And remember, she always kept saying, I'm going to come back as this, that, and the other. Then I'm born, and I am a walking embodiment mm-hmm. of everything that she said she was going to be. You got a man. You were working a job that a man had. Two jobs that men had. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, and uh, you do what you want to do, and you live yeah. your life. How? I that's live. so funny fucking cool i believe in shit like that and i oh, like yeah. that my, my nickname is my mother doesn't call me by my name my nickname is granny because i'm my own grandmother my mother calls me granny that is my nickname oh. in my family and has been <laughs> since i was a child granny. i love that that's fucking adorable come on <laughs> granny and then in walks a child <laughs> like, is it time for my snack <laughs> <laughs> exactly and, and, and it helped me when i had to come out to my mom because she was not happy about the lesbianity as a nigerian Staunch Christian, and I all I had to say was, "But Mom, I am your mother, and this is what she wanted. <laughs> I've come out exactly what your mother wanted. I am your mom." So she said she was going to come out, not needing any man. No, I am that. I don't need any man. So and my my mom was like, hmm. <laughs> she couldn't say shit. <laughs> That's so fucking funny. She's like, I want to hate this, but like, I literally can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gina, thank you so much for doing this. What would you like to promote? You got a lot of shit going on. Tell the people. Well, make sure you buy my book, Cat Candid, because uh, the more detailed versions of these very stories I've told you are all in this book. And it is a good read, <laughs> even if I say so myself. It is actually a good book. I know. Listen, here's the thing. If you buy this book and you don't like it, email me at info at geniashare.com and I'll give you your money back. There you go. It's it's a win-win. I'll give you the money back if you buy this book and you don't like it because I know you're going to love it. And, you know, make sure you watch my show, Bob Hart's Abishola, Monday nights on uh, CBS at 8.30 p.m. Please watch the show. Uh, Fourth season, we've been picked up. And I know we don't get the cool factor that you, the insecures and the the uh, you know other elementaries <laughs> get because they're you know they're cooler younger shows. But our show is fucking good, so watch it. <laughs> you also have a Netflix special, yes? Oh, I have several Netflix specials oh. uh, now. I mean, two of them are old. They're two of them are older. Like I sold them t- two specials I made myself with my own money because I won't mm-hmm. wait for nobody. So one is called Skinny, Skinny Bitch because. 
I was bigger and I lost weight and people were, every time I got on stage, audience would, audiences would just break into conversations. How did she do it? What's happened? Is she ill? Is she, is she, is she on crystal meth? What is it? So I called the special skinny bitch and the first few minutes is explaining. I lost the weight because I had lupus and I did things. Mm-hmm. And I did things. And I did things. Um, so that one's called Skinny Bitch. There's another one that I made in San Francisco in 2012 called Laughing to America. And then I'm also on uh, season two of the stand-up. Yeah, on Netflix. So I'm all over the Netflixes. Go watch my specials. You're all over. God, Tasha, I love it. <laughs> um, okay, if you write me a dirty message, I will read it. Put this in your ear holes. Nicole, I'd happily hire the hottest man I could find to come to your house, shove a dozen cronauts into your favorite luscious crevice, skewer them <laughs> with that famous monster cock, then pull the whole flaky mess out and feed it to you while you made hamster noises. You know? <laughs> I don't even know. Oh, I guess they go, that's cute. I like that. That's nice. And I've never had a cronut, so that's <laughs> nice of you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for Why Won't You Date Me with me, Nicole Byer. Why Won't You Date Me is produced and engineered by, oh, the sweetest woman I know, Marissa Melnick. It is executive produced by other wonderful people, Adam Sachs, Joanna Solotaroff, and Jeff Ross. Thanks for listening. I love you. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you next Friday with a brand new episode. What a treat. What a dream. <laughs> This has been a Team Coco production. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.